Thank you very much. If you would turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. You know, things are uh, pretty crazy these days in light of all that's going on in our country. Um, move, movements to uh, defund the police, uh, issues over critical race theory, uh, trillions being spent on our um, economy, uh, social justice issues, all kinds of things, issues at the border, issues with potential problems as a result of Afghanistan, um, issues with parents showing up at um, school board meetings and the Department of Justice and uh, supply chain issues, COVID issues, climate change issues in various ways, cyber attacks. The list just goes on and on. And the question is, uh, how can we be joyful in light of all of those things, in light of whatever concerns we might have? Those are the big picture things, but all of us have a long list, I imagine, of personal things that we could add to those things. And so it's important, I think, just to begin, first of all, by reminding us of what the Bible basically talks about in so many different ways. There are themes that we find in the Bible. The Bible tells us about God and tells us that God is truly the supreme good. He tells us about man, or the Bible does, that man is an idol worshiper, worshiping something other than the true God, and that's the major problem we have. But God in his mercy has provided his son, the Lord Jesus, to cure us of our ills. And the response to these truths should be along the lines of faith, which is a resting in Jesus and what he's done for us, hoping in God for what we need and desire, pursuing love in light of what God calls us to do. And joy is a major theme in the Bible. We are called to rejoice always, regardless of what's going on in our country, regardless of what's going on in our lives. Indeed, it says in Nehemiah 8, verse 10, uh, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Think about that. The joy of the Lord is your strength because joy is what fuels true worship, true praise, true thanksgiving, true glorifying God is very much about joy in God, rejoicing in who God is, and what he's done for us, and what he's promised to us. And joy is very much connected to what we expect to happen. It's related to what God has done for us in the past, but then what we expect to happen in the future in light of what God has done for us in the past. And so when you think about all those various things going on in our country, and even things going on in your personal life, uh, the question is, what do you expect to happen and does those, do those expectations rather fuel a joy in God or do they rob you of joy? And so what we want to do is we want to look at uh, this chapter in Acts chapter 3 and encourage us to remember some things about expectations and how they relate to our joy in the Lord, which is very, very important. So what I'd like to do is read this chapter in three sections because it breaks down that way very easily. And I'd like to read the first 11 verses for us of Acts chapter 3. It says in verse 1, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along. 
whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. So what we have here is we have, after the day of Pentecost, and after Peter preaches his first sermon, we have one of the miracles that is referenced earlier in Acts chapter 2, when it says in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So here we have an account of one of those wonders and signs that were taking place through the apostles, and in this case, through Peter and John. So they're going to a prayer meeting. They're going to one of the two primary prayer times at the temple at that time. One was at 9, one was at 3. And the ninth hour was the 3 p.m. prayer service, and they were connected to the daily morning and afternoon or evening sacrifice. So it's connected to atonement. A prayer meeting connected to atonement. And they're on their way to this prayer meeting and they're going into the temple precincts and they run across a man who's been carried to one of the gates uh, that lead into the temple called the beautiful gate. And he's carried there because he cannot walk. And so they place him at the gate and Peter and John are going by and he begins asking for alms. An alm is a gift to the poor of some kind. That's what an alm is. It's, it's asking for money or support of some kind um, because you're poor, because uh, you're a beggar, because you are dependent on someone else providing what you need. And so as a result of him looking up to Peter and John and saying, please help me, please give me what I need to sustain my body and to uh, clothe myself and to make it till tomorrow. I, I, I just need a few bucks to go buy a meal. You've heard that before, haven't you? I've heard that many times in my life, someone asking, I just need a few dollars to go buy a meal. So he's basically doing that. And Peter looks at him and says, sorry, I don't have any money. Can't, can't give you any money to buy that meal but I do have something better. And he says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he reaches out and he grabs him and he pulls him up. And all of a sudden he's healed and he can walk. And that's when Sunday school begins. Because they sang the song, walking and leaping and praising God. Because that's what we sing in Sunday school, right? We sing about this man. And so that's what happened. He's healed and he begins immediately praising God Forgiving him more than what he asked for. 
He asked for a handout, asked for enough for a meal, and he got healing so that he could work and provide for himself and so much more than that. Well, let me just back up a little bit and highlight some things that are important. When the book of Acts talks about these miracles and the good things that are being done by the apostles and by the church, it's a reflection on the way the Lord Jesus himself ministered. It says in Matthew 4, Jesus was going about throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So that Jesus not only preached the word and loved in word, but he loved in deed. He healed people. He met people's needs. And that's why the Bible in so many ways calls us to love both in in word and deed. And that's what the apostles are doing because in a minute we're going to read about Peter loving them in word. This part of the story is Peter loving them in deed. Um, And so what is the point of the miracles? God isn't doing those kinds of miracles today, typically. Not that he couldn't if he wanted to. But that's not the typical way he works. Uh, Things aren't like they were in the ministry of Jesus. They're not like they were in the ministry of the apostles with people being raised from the dead and people who are just lame from birth being raised up and giving the power to walk. So what was the point of it then? The point of it then was to point beyond the physical healing or the physical provision to the spiritual provision in Jesus. It was to get people's attention so they could hear about the real need that they have. They think, people think, we think that our real needs are food and clothing and shelter and and all kinds of things like that when our real need is so much greater. Spiritual need, the need for repentance, the need for faith, all those kinds of things. And so ultimately these miracles of transforming someone's life who was born unable to walk and then being able to walk is a picture of how God can take you and me when we can't walk in a manner pleasing to God, when we can't love people like we should, when we can't love God like we should and cause us to walk, give us strength to do what we cannot do. And so it's meant to be a great, great encouragement. You can see the same kind of thing in First Peter 2 when it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. There are people who take that verse and misapply it to physical healing. The context is he died that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might go from being dead to doing what is right to being alive to doing what is right, that we're healed in that spiritual sense. That was the primary reason why Jesus came. One day our bodies will be healed. We'll have new bodies, but right now the promise is for new lives that love God and love others by his grace. Matthew Henry said, such piteous cases, talking about the lame man, show us what we are all by nature spiritually, without strength, lame from our birth, unable to work or walk in God's service. So ultimately, these miracles point to spiritual truths that we need to see. Well, Obviously, all this took place with um, Peter and John on the way to a prayer meeting. And that prayer meeting is linked to a sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. And so ultimately, all these things flow together that 
because of what Jesus has done for me, I am to ask God for what I need. And the question is, how do I do that? Do I do that with great expectations or with very poor expectations? In Matthew 7, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or Or what man is there among you? When his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? There's a reason why Jesus said that. It's because when we pray to God, there are times when we either fear that he's not going to answer our prayer or he's going to give us something like a stone or a snake. We're asking for a loaf and a fish, but he says, oh, no, that's not what you need. You need a, a stone and a snake. And therefore, we wonder what we ought to really expect when we pray. Is God really out to give us what we ask for or not? He goes on to say, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? How much more will your father, your perfect, loving Heavenly Father, how much more? He said, how much more, God? That's the God we have. That's the Father we have. And that's why I can say in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. When you pray to God, you expect him to do not only what you ask him to do, but even more than you ask him to do. The lame man said, "Could could you spare a dime, buddy? And God healed him. He did far more than what he asked for. It's interesting. uh, Hudson Taylor went to China and he was on a sailing vessel on the way. And they were getting uh, close to uh, this island where there were some cannibals. And so the captain went to see Hudson Taylor and knocked on his door and said, you know what, There's, there's no wind And we're beginning to drift toward this island that has cannibals on it. I think it might be a good idea not to, to, uh, you know, um, hit that island. And and so could you pray? Could you pray for wind? And um, Hudson Taylor said, all right, uh, I'll pray, but you have to put the sail up. You have to get ready for wind. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Mike. My crew will think I'm crazy. There's no wind out there, so why should we put up the sail? But finally, he gave in. He said, okay, I'll put the sail up, and he left. And 45 minutes later, he came back, and Hudson Taylor was still on his knees praying. And this is what he said. He said, "Um, you can stop praying now. We've got more wind than we know what to do with. Is that your expectation of your father? that he will give you more wind than you know what to do with when you ask for wind, that he'll give you more than what you actually ask for. I think that's why the Bible says we don't know how to pray as we should. God wants to give us more than we ask for. But that's why the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf, because he knows just how much God wants to give us. And he prays for the more that we don't even know how to pray for. So the first thing, I don't think I went beyond this. I was actually intending to forward this a little bit, 
is the first question that we have to ask in terms of having a joyful walk is whether or not we expect God, because of Jesus, uh, to give us more than we ask for. That's the kind of God we have because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the kind of father that we have. The second thing is found in verses 12 through 18. Let me read those for us. It says in verse 12, this is Peter loving the people with words. He's already loved uh, this man with a good deed. And now he's going to love not only this man, but the whole uh, crowd with words. He says in verse 12, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety, we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses." And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. The second question that I want us to consider in light of these verses is, not only do you expect God to give you more than you ask for, but do you expect God to bring life and righteousness out of sin and death? Do you expect God to bring good out of evil, not just through other people's circumstances, not just through other circumstances in the world, but through your circumstances, through what you're going through? Do you expect God to bring good out of evil. Now, we talk about this a lot, and there's an important reason why we talk about this a lot, because the Bible, in so many ways, encourages us to trust God. We're just saying over and over again, I trust you, Lord. I trust you, God. Oh, God, I trust you. Uh, what What are we trusting him for? Are we trusting him to give us more than we can even imagine and ask for? Are we trusting him to bring good out of evil, uh, even in our own lives? Well, the reality is that he calls us to do that because he wants us to believe that he really does love us. Part of what's going on here in this story is uh, Peter starts off by saying, uh, you're prone to think that John and I are something special because we healed this man, so to speak, or we were involved in the healing of this man, which goes back to the whole idea that man is an idol worshiper. We're always looking for someone or something else to worship besides the true God. And so what Peter does in verse 12 is he just begins by saying, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? Which means... uh, because of our own power and strength and, and ability, we caused him to walk. Why, why do you look at us as if that were true? Or why do you look at us as if our piety 
You know, maybe we don't have the power, but we're just so holy. We're so holy and good and righteous that God can use us to do things that he won't use you to do. And Peter very quickly says, it's not because we have the power in ourselves, nor is it because we're such great, perfect, holy people that God has used us. Indeed, the, the Bible in all kinds of ways encourages us to, to do good, but to not to take credit for it. Um, the way it talks about it in Isaiah 10 is, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it. Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. So the point is that when we do good to others, we're more like an axe or a saw or a club or a rod than we are like the person who's wielding those things. God is the one who is wielding those things. We're just a tool in God's hands. That's what Peter is saying. We're just a tool. We're just something or someone that God has used to to do something. It's God who did it. John Stott said the power was Christ's, the hand was Peter's. And that's the way we should look at what we do as well. But both are involved. Both the hand of Peter and the power of God. And so uh, in terms of how God is doing what he's doing in the world That's one of the realities. The other reality that's coming through this passage is Peter goes on to talk about the fact that uh, you guys put to death the prince of life. But God has exalted the prince of life named Jesus and it's because of him and in his name that this man is healed. So what is that a picture of? That is a picture of God bringing healing and life out of death. That's God bringing righteousness out of sin. That's God doing, God working in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. It's a mysterious thing that God causes righteousness to blossom through the sin of man, the righteousness of Christ, and a gift of righteousness through Christ, through the sin of man. It's a mysterious and wonderful thing that God brings life out of death. It's, um, it's what we celebrate when we talk about God causes all things to work together for good. And in that same passage, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What's the connection there? A sin happened, a, a murder. You murdered the prince of life. And if God would sovereignly ordain that his son be murdered, you can trust that he will withhold no good thing from you. That's, that's God bringing life out of death. That's God bringing righteousness and joy and peace out of sin. And that's the way God still works. He works in a way that is very mysterious to us. In a sense, it's the uh, grain of wheat principle that Jesus talked about in John 12 when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In the context, he's talking about his own death. I must die that life might come. But that principle holds true in actual 
planting and harvesting of things in the field, but it also holds true in our own lives. That God does things in our lives that uh, feel like and look like and smell like death, but it's meant to bring life. And God calls us, encourages us to trust him for that. Um, I think I've shared this story before about three expectant fathers. Um, uh, The nurse comes in uh, to this room where there are these three expectant fathers waiting for their wives to have a baby. And the nurse comes in and addresses the first father and says, congratulations, you have twins. You may remember the the first father says, oh, that's great. And and you know what? It's so odd. I work for the Minnesota Twins and I just had twins. Wow. And so then uh, after a little while, a second nurse comes in and tells the second father, hey, congratulations, you had triplets. And the father says, wow, that's great. And you know what? It's so odd. But I work for the 3M company. Wow, that's great. And so this third father looks over at the other two fathers and he immediately falls on the floor and cries out, oh, no. And they say, what's the matter? What's wrong? He says, I work for 7-Up. <laughs> what's the point of that story? That man was afraid that his circumstances would give birth to what he did not want. He didn't want seven kids. His circumstances seemed to imply that he was going to get seven kids because he worked for the, for the 7-Up company. He looked at his circumstances based on information that he had received. He said, wait a minute. How can this be good? I don't want this. What does God promise us? If he truly causes all things to work together for our good, then we don't have to be afraid that any circumstances, whether in our country or whether in our personal life, that none of those circumstances need to be feared need to be rejected as if they will give birth to something that we don't really want. It's a matter of, do I really trust my father that he knows what he's doing? Do we expect God, really expect God? I don't mean just say that, oh yeah, I know God brings good out of evil. I know God works all things together for my good. I've heard that since I became reformed or whatever. But do I really believe that for me, for my for my own personal circumstances. Thirdly, let's look at the last part of this chapter where he says, beginning in verse uh, 19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped out or wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you 
from your wicked ways. So on the one hand, we want to ask ourselves, because of Jesus and what he's done for us, do we expect God to give us more than we ask for? Because of Jesus, do we expect God to bring, truly bring good out of evil in our circumstances? And finally, because of Jesus, do we expect God to give us what we really want through what we really need? Do we really believe that God will give us what we really, truly want through what we really need? Now, what I'm focusing on in this passage, uh, Peter's basically calling them to repentance. Uh, He's told them, don't worship us, worship God. Uh, But what you really need to do is embrace the reality that Jesus is who he said he was, that he proclaimed himself to be the son of God. He proclaimed that he was the savior of the world, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you need to repent. You need to repent of your rejection of Jesus. You need to repent of your sin and you need to And trust yourself to Jesus because he is the prophet like Moses that Moses said would come. That you need to obey him or you'll be destroyed. You won't experience life, but you'll experience death. He is the prince of life, but only those who receive him as Lord and Savior experience life. Otherwise, they experience death. And so he's calling them to a repentance. Repentance means that I have a change of mind about sin. It doesn't mean that I clean up my life. There is fruit to repentance, but it's not, he's not talking about deeds. He's talking about your attitude and my attitude towards sin. Whereas before we come to Christ, we look at sin as, in many cases, a good thing. Now, we might not define it as sin, but anything that God says is sin that we give ourselves to is something that, for whatever reason, we think must be a good thing, must be a good way to pursue life, must be a must be a way to find the happiness that my heart longs for. But by God's grace, uh, when he renews our minds and regenerates us, we see sin for what it really is, is that which brings death. And we hate sin in principle. We say, I don't want either the penalty of sin, which is hell, nor the power of sin over my life. So repentance means not only do I want to escape hell, which is the penalty of sin, but I also want to be delivered from the power of sin over my life so that I live to please God and I find God and experience God to be the real peace and joy that my heart longs for. That's why it says in Luke 24 that after Jesus was risen from the dead, he said, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer And rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now that repentance includes, I turn from my own self-righteousness and I trust in the righteousness of Christ alone to make me acceptable to God. It means I turn from looking to the things of this world for my happiness and I put my hope in God. For my happiness. It means I turn from doing what I want to do, thinking that that's going to make me happy, and I turn to God and I sub- submit myself to God and I say, God, I want to do what you want me to do, and I trust that that will truly make me happy. And so it's a situation where 
Um, repentance causes us to begin to want to live to please God and to believe that by living in a certain way as God calls me to, I will please God and it will also please me. God doesn't call me not to please myself, not to find satisfaction, not to find happiness. He just says, you're looking for it in the wrong places, looking for love in all the wrong places. It's found in God. Happiness is found in God. And so he says, I want you to live to please me. And guess what? It's going to please you too. You're not going to regret living to please me. And that's what repentance is, is is a turning from those things that is based on my own self-reliance, based on my self-righteousness, based on looking to the things of the world, based on doing my own thing and actually giving my life to the Lord Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Now, how does that apply? Obviously, that's how we come to Christ and that's the foundation for our Christian living. But how does this apply to us as Christians? I'm highlighting the fact that he says at the very end of this passage, for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. We can argue that the blessing that our hearts long for can only come through what we need. What do we all need? Initially and throughout our lives, we need repentance. We, we need to be turned to God, uh, both at the beginning of our Christian life and throughout our Christian lives. Just like Martin Luther said, the Christian life is a life of continual repentance in various ways, a continual turning from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and turning to God for what we need and desire. And so in order for God to bless us, with what our hearts really want. And what do our hearts really want? We want full and lasting happiness. That's what we want. Every man wants that. Pascal said, regardless of whether you go to war or you take your own life, every man is pursuing his own happiness. He's pursuing his full and lasting happiness. And yet, the only way we can know that is in God and through God because God created us and he designed us to find our happiness in him. And so all that God is doing in our lives is to wean us off, cause us to repent of all those things that are actually hindering us from having a joyful walk, a true joyful walk in God so that he can give us what our hearts really long for, which is true lasting happiness. I think I've told before the story of the young man who um, was born to a wealthy family. He wanted a, wanted a sports car for his graduation, you might remember. And um, on the day that he graduated, his dad gave him a box, and in that box was a Bible. And he opened the package, he opened the box, and he saw the Bible, this young, young man did, and he slammed it to the floor and said, with all the money you have, Dad, and you give me a Bible... And he stormed out the door. And even though the dad tried to contact him, he never was able to do so. They never spoke again, according to the story. And then one day, his dad died. And somehow, somebody found him and and said that his dad had left everything to him. And so he came back and he started going through all of his dad's things. And he found this Bible in the box. And he opened it up just out of curiosity. And he began... Uh, looking through the Bible, and the Bible actually fell open uh, to a particular passage that his father had marked. And the passage was Matthew seven eleven. If you then, being evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your father give what is good to those who ask him? And as he read that, all of a sudden, a car key fell out of the Bible. The car key that was to the sports car that he really wanted. And there was a note that said, paid in full, love dad. So think about the story from this angle today. The father gave the son what he really needed, which was the truth of the word of God. So he could rightly enjoy what he really wanted, which was that car. He gave him what he really needed, the truth of the Bible, so that he could rightly enjoy that car that he really wanted. But he rejected what he really needed and lost what he really wanted. We are all in danger of that. We're all in danger of looking at our circumstances and rejecting what God is doing because it's not what we want, but it's what we need. Everything that's going on in this country, everything that's going on in our lives is what we need that we might have what we truly want, which is full and lasting joy in God. That's the heart of our Father. And so the question is, do we expect God to give us what we really want through giving us what we really need? That's why the Bible can say, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. As you look at your news feed, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. As you look at your prayer list for yourself and your family, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Now, with the last uh, 10 minutes I have here, I'd like to make some application for us that will actually help us as we go into our family meeting and will actually uh, help us as we move forward in the future. We're, We're planning on encouraging us as a body uh, to love in some different ways, and hopefully this will help us think through that a little bit. Um, As you look at this story, just going back to the first part of this passage where it talks about the healing of the lame man, uh, what's happening there? The lame man reaches out for help. He reaches out for help. Peter reaches out to help. Then, after all is said and, said and done, Peter gives God all the glory for the help given and the help received. That's what I want us to think a little bit about practically. The Bible encourages us in so many ways to both remember that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That we're not saved by our works. But, We're not saved by a faith that is alone. We're saved by a faith that produces good works. That's why it says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone in Jesus and what he's done, by his works. But it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And that means doing good to all men. It says in Galatians 6, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, 
and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We're to do good to all people, but we're especially to make sure we take care of our own families and we're to love the other believers in the family of God. That's why in Titus 3, um, Paul could tell Titus, uh, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Then he goes on to say, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Then finally, he says in verse 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. And it's very clear that we can only do this by grace. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul could say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So we need to pray and ask God to help us to do what we can't do on our own, but it's helpful to understand that God calls us to to love not only in word but in deed. That's why 1 John 3 says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. He says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, for other believers. Now, the reality is, that all of us are somewhere on a continuum with regard to giving our lives, laying down our lives for good deeds to other Christians and even outside the church. And so not all of us are in the same place. Some of us are further along. Some of us are uh, much better, you might say, at fleshing this out and doing this. Others of us are um, not as focused on it as we should be, not as... Uh, intent on it as we should be but regardless of where we are on the continuum it's not to uh, say there's no good things that we're giving our lives to it's not saying there's nothing there for any of us who are christians but it is to say all of us have room for growth all of us can grow in this area regardless wherever wherever we might find ourselves on the continuum that's why twice in first thessalonians 4 paul could say that we know you You uh, give your life to walk and please God, but we encourage you to excel still more. So it says, I know this is what you're doing, but don't be content where you are. Excel even more in seeking to please God and to walk as you should walk. And so what I want to do, and this is actually on the back of your notes. Um, Hopefully you you looked at those notes on your email or picked up a copy uh, beforehand, or you can find them afterwards. But I want us to think about the whole issue of doing good in terms of reaching out. Because in one sense, the layman reached out for help and Peter reached out to help. And so I want to use that as a way of picturing what God calls us to. And the first question is, what hinders us from reaching out for help or reaching out to help others? To one degree or another, not that we don't ever do these things, but what are hindrances to us? And one hindrance is ignorance. Somebody needs any help? I don't, even, I don't know if anybody needs any help. Just we're not aware of things. Sometimes that's a hindrance. Uh, pride can be a hindrance. I don't think I need any help. Or fear, I couldn't be of much help. Or selfishness, I would help. But you know, that takes a lot of time. Or it could be bad past experiences Last time I tried to ask for help, it didn't go real well. Or last time I tried to give help, they didn't respond very well. 
So there are various things that can actually hinder us on one side of the coin or the other, whether we find ourselves in the position of the layman or we find ourselves in the position of Peter, we can be hindered in that. And so where might we be if we're uh, like the lame man in need of help? Um, what might our position be? Well, there's four four different places we might find ourselves, at least four. There's probably more. Uh, we could find ourselves as, in terms of uh, reaching out for help, we might find ourselves as being silent and independent, which means I don't ask for help because I don't really think I need any help. Or we might find ourselves as silent and needy. I um, know I... Um, need help, but I just don't ask for it. Or I might be verbal and resistant. I might be talking to a lot of people about what I need, but when somebody tries to help me, I say, no, thank you. So I'm resistant to help. Or I might be verbal, talking about my need for help, and actually willing to receive it when people offer me help. And so there are times all of us might find ourselves like the lame man, uh, really, really in need of help. And we have to ask ourselves, in what category do we find ourselves? Where is our heart in all of this? The other thing is reaching out to help. Uh, What might our position be with regard to reaching out to help people that we see around us in need? Well, the first category we might find ourselves in, we might find our heart in this position for various reasons. You're not always necessarily in this, these categories. It may vary from day to day. It may vary from issue to issue in terms of needing help. It doesn't mean you're just characterized by that all the time. But we have to ask ourselves in terms of where I am, do I fall into this category or that category in, in this situation? And sometimes we might find ourselves unhelpful and indifferent. We're not helping and we're really not concerned about helping. And obviously that's not a good place if we find our hearts there. Or we might find our hearts really willing to help and ready to help, but concerned um, and concerned about helping, but feeling almost paralyzed, feeling like I'm not sure how they're going to receive it. I'm not sure how they're going to respond. I'm not sure I can really meet their need. We can be wanting to help, but actually in some sense not being helpful because we feel restrained. Or we might be helpful, have a heart to help. And if somebody comes to me and says, can you help me? We're ready to say yes. We're ready to say yes, I would be glad to. The fourth category is we can be helpful, ready to help, and actually proactive. That we don't wait for people to come to us, but we actually go to them. And we say, hey, I've just been noticing some things. Um, Can I help? Can I be of, of assistance? And so those categories are just a way of thinking through where our hearts might be, either when we're maybe needy in certain ways or when we're wanting to help in certain ways. But ultimately, the reality is um, the most important helper is God. God is the ultimate helper. And I read just this week in Jeremiah 42 where it says, God says, I will also show you compassion so that he, speaking about Nebuchadnezzar, who was an unbeliever, so that he will have compassion on you. He says, I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion. What does that mean? That means God uses people to show compassion. 
It means when Peter healed the lame man, it was God healing the lame man. When Peter showed compassion to the lame man, it was God who gave him a heart to show compassion to that lame man and the power to do something about it. So that when we reach out to people, we should understand that a heart to do that is an expression of the heart of God. And when we see people reaching out to us, we need to understand it is the heart of God that lies behind that heart that's reaching out to us. God is our help, as it says in Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Let's bow in prayer. Let me just ask these questions for us to reflect on before we pray. Um, Do you need to reach out to God for help? Is there something in your life that you need to ask God to help you with? Maybe you need to be delivered from your sin and given a heart to trust in Christ. Maybe you need grace to walk in a certain way, to love and and to trust God. Have you reached out to God for help? But also, in light of how God helps, have you reached out to God for help to reach out for help? Maybe you need to ask God to help you to reach out for help for certain things. Have you asked God to help you for help to reach out to help. Maybe there are people in your life you need to seek to help and you need God to help you to help. Have you reached out to God by reaching out for help from others? In other words, that part of my reaching out to God is not only praying, but also reaching out to others as needed because God uses people. And finally, finally, have you reached out on God's behalf by reaching out to help others, knowing that God works through us to show his love and to help people, to help one another. Father, we pray that you would just help us in all kinds of ways to see the wonders of the truth of your word that we see in Acts chapter 3. We pray that you would help us to walk joyfully. We pray that you would help us to expect great things, wonderful things from you, our Father. And we pray that you would help us to reach out for help, to you and to others as we need to and help us to reach out to help others in your name as you'd have us to and grow us in these things because we all need to grow. We thank you for the grace you've given us. We pray for more grace. We pray that we would excel even more. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.